much. Well, I want to start with uh, this question that you see on the screen. And that is, why do you believe what you believe? Do you ever think about that? Most of us don't. You know, we just sort of go on instinct. And if we really ever stopped and were able to peel back our uh, scalp and look inside our brain and kind of see how we're all wired, we would find out that our belief system is typically a, a result of a combination of inputs and things from a variety of different sources over the course of our life. But why do you believe what you believe? The technical term uh, for that question is called epistemology. We would say, what is your epistemology? Another term for this question is worldview. What is your worldview? Everyone has a worldview, even if you don't know where it came from. But it's there. We have a belief system. Our culture today in this postmodern age, you know, postmodern meaning if you, if you look at all of human history, historians tend to divide it into the pre-modern era, the modern era, and now the postmodern era. And that shift into the postmodern era for most of us in this room occurred during our lifetime. Um, but in this postmodern culture, a worldview is often based on uh, your own personal truth with a little t your own bias. In fact, uh, all truths, little t, they say, are equally valid. But is that really accurate? Is truth really in the, the eye of the beholder? Or is there some external standard of truth that is absolute and to which we all must be held accountable? I had a lady at a conference recently uh, come up uh, to me and engage me in conversation and insist that God will let people into heaven based on how nice they are. And if you're a nice, kind person and kind and loving to others, you'll get to heaven. And I began to explain to her that that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, only through faith in me. If you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24, and various other passages. If you, if you have not believed in me, he said in John 3, you're condemned uh, already. And uh, she said, no, 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 it's, I know, I know that he's, anyone who's kind and nice will get to heaven. Well, how do you know this? She said, well, I had a dream. Well, her worldview was based on her dreams. That's where she based her beliefs, was on what she had experienced in a dream. Well, in Acts chapter 13, we come to Paul's first major sermon recorded in history. So that's significant for a number of reasons. First of all, the Apostle Paul became one of the most prolific missionaries and writers of Scripture, writing 13 books of the New Testament. Of course, we've seen already in our study through Acts, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus when he met the Lord. Um, and, uh, but this is his first journey, and it's still early in the history of the church. In fact, it's still before any books of the New Testament have written with the possible exception, which happened around the same time as this journey that we're going to look at this morning, of James. Remember, James, the Lord's brother, wrote the epistle that bears his name, and it was the earliest, one of the earliest books of the New Testament. Um, right after this journey that we're going to look at, uh, Paul writes his first of 13 epistles, the book of Galatians, and he's writing it back to the people that he visited, he and Barnabas visited on this, on this journey that we read about in Acts chapters 13 and, and 14. But as, we, as I read through this, remember when you're studying historical narratives, which in the New Testament that's the book of Acts, you have to be careful not to 
allegorize or principalize everything you read. Basically, it's telling us a historical account of what happened accurately, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit. And then you have to kind of make some observations. You know, the book of Acts is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. It's not always telling us what we should do. It's just telling us what happened. And so as we've been teaching through the book of Acts, I've done, uh, tried to do a good job of taking the passages that we read and saying, hey, here's what happened. Now, what can we learn from that? And where do we see the principles that are being uh, manifested in these historical accounts taught directly elsewhere? And, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. And one of the things that jumped off the page at me as I read the 52 verses of chapter 13 was the number of times either Luke, the narrator who wrote the book of Acts, or Paul in his sermon, when we get to that portion of chapter 13, referred to the Word of God what we now call the Bible. In other words, what gave Paul the right to speak with such authority? How did Paul's listeners know that Paul's truth was actually the truth, capital uh, T? So uh, to kind of put this in historical perspective, I want to put a map on the screen here. And if you see on the far right there, you can see where it says Syria same place that modern-day Syria is today. Down at the bottom right, you can see Jerusalem down there. So that kind of gives you a little bearing. Uh, but see that coastal city up in Syria called Antioch? Well, that became uh, Paul and Barnabas' home church. So the year is 48 A.D. Remember, the church was founded in 33 A.D., so it's 15 years old now. Paul got saved in 35 A.D., so Paul's been a believer now 13 or 14 years. And he and Barnabas, as we're going to see, are commissioned by the church in Antioch, uh, sent out with prayers to go and share the gospel to points west. And so if you follow the arrow, arrows, they started out and they went to Cyprus, which was Barnabas' uh, homeland, by the way. Barnabas was raised on Cyprus. They started out on the east coast of the island in Salamis, and then ended up in the capital city in Paphos. Uh, and that's where Paul leads the Roman uh, governmental official, Sergius Paulus, to faith. And then uh, from there, they sailed upward to southern Galatia, the, that region there you see, Pisidia, Pamphylia, cities like Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, also another Antioch, a different Antioch than the one over in Syria. And by the way, as they left Paphos to sail up to that region, John Mark, who was with them. So the, there were three of them that were sent out by the church in Antioch to go on this missionary trip. Paul, Barnabas, and um, John Mark. John Mark is significant because he's the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And uh, he's also the one whose mother, his mother's house, was kind of the, the, the key a meetup place in Jerusalem around the time of Christ's death. That's where the upper room discourse took place and up above on the roof of John Mark's mother's house in John 14 to 17 or 13 to 17 rather. That's where the disciples met after Christ ascended back to the right hand of God and they went back to Jerusalem and met and prayed and replaced Judas who had uh, you know, proven himself to not be a believer and then they kind of regathered and so forth. So that's, that's the John Mark that was with them. Well, when they left Cyprus, Luke tells us John Mark left. He deserted them and went back to Jerusalem. We have no idea why. 
we could speculate, and scholars have come up with some pretty plausible explanations. Perhaps he suffered from uh, fear. Maybe he was uh, afraid of what was going to uh, await them. He was very much uh, a Jewish believer, and of course Paul was too, but Paul had been commissioned to go to the Gentiles, but maybe he was concerned that they, they, that they were preaching the gospel of the Gentiles and he needed more clarity. We don't really know why. We could speculate all day, but he left them. And, uh, and then Paul and Barnabas continue on, and you see they kind of travel that whole region of southern Galatia, uh, and then they circle back around, and they come all the way back straight from Perga to Antioch, and they give a report. So this map kind of talks about the whole journey. We're just looking at uh, chapter uh, 13. And in his sermon, and as well as in Luke's sort of account, blow by blow of what happens, we see frequent references to the Word of God as the basis for Paul's belief system. In essence, Paul says, I stand on the Word of God. Now that's important because if anyone needed a place to stand, it was Paul because he had been, before he got saved, an enemy of the church, murdering Christians, antagonizing Christians, hostile toward Christ and all that Christ stood for. But after he met the Lord, now 14 years later, he had, he had understood the Old Testament, which was the Bible they had at that time, more clearly. By the time uh, the first century rolled around, most Jews not Christians, but, but you know, this is before the church was established after Christ's death and resurrection, they had drifted far away from the plain teaching of the Old Testament. Remember, Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet that whom God inspired to write. And then there were 400 silent years before Christ comes on the scene in the first century. And during those 400 years, the people of Israel drifted, as they so often did, far away from the teaching of the Word of God. And they had created new laws and iterations of laws and 613 points that you had to keep. And so by the time Christ comes on the scene and preaches his first major sermon, he's, he's really having to correct a lot of bad theology from the Jews alone, just their understanding of God. They had kind of put God in this box of legalism and that you had to dot your I's and cross your T's and make sure you behaved. And they didn't understand that, that it was by faith that Father Abraham, their, the, the patriarch, had been saved and justified, not by keeping the law. And so they had really twisted some things, and Paul was caught up in all that, like so many of the scribes and Pharisees and so forth. Paul was a Pharisee, by the way. And so uh, Paul had a lot of baggage, I guess is what I'm saying, that after he met the Lord, he really had to go back and, and think again. And I think the same thing is true today when we think of our worldview. Everyone sitting in this room and, and watching the live stream has baggage, you know, why do you believe what you believe? Maybe you believe one thing because, you know, your parents taught you. Or another thing because you saw it on Oprah Winfrey. I hope not. But another thing because you read it in a book. Or maybe your seventh grade geometry teacher taught you this. Or maybe you saw a, a, a documentary about something and so you believe that. And maybe somewhere along the way there's some Bible sprinkled in. You heard it in Sunday school class. Or maybe you were raised in church or something. Or you heard a sermon on the radio or on TV. But... The fact is, we all have a lot of baggage. And I think what Paul had to do during those 14 years after he got saved, before he began his official ministry, was to get alone with the Word of God and understand it in its plain, normal sense. And that's what I think the takeaway from today is, is we need to remember to stand on the Word of God. Why do you believe what you believe? If you can't 
point to chapter and verse and make the case biblically and theologically, at best it's just a principle or some human advice. And there's good advice out there. You know, the book of Proverbs talks about how life can be a great teacher and so forth. But more and more, especially in these you know, great last days that we're facing, I'm seeing people speculate and come up with these grandiose ideas about what God is doing or what they think God is doing, and they can't really directly draw it back from Scripture. And so we've got to make an effort to differentiate truth with a capital T from speculation. So I want to just read a, a, a small section of this. It's a, it's a big chapter, and I won't take the time to read it all, but it, it's a great uh, read. I encourage you to go back and read the entire uh, chapter, especially when you get uh, to Paul's uh, sermon. In uh, Paul, verse 16, Paul stands up, and, and the rest of, pretty much the rest of the chapter is <coughs> his sermon, all the way through verse 47. But let's just pick it up for context in verse 1. <clears throat> now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So these were key leaders in that church, some of them prophets and some of them teachers. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. That tradition continues today in most Bible-believing churches. When we send someone on, a, even on a short-term mission trip, we as a church body will gather around them, pray for them, ask the Lord to use them and be with them. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, I think that's interesting that Luke reminds us who it was that was really doing the sending. It wasn't, you know, the church at Antioch. It was the Holy Spirit, ultimately, and the church was just part of his process. And let's not forget that that's who we want leading Plum Creek Chapel, too, is the Holy Spirit. This is the Lord's church. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, God eternally exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit sent them. Uh, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So basically Seleucia was the port city closest to Antioch. That's where they boarded the ship. And I think, if I remember right, it was about 135 miles uh, to uh, Cyprus. Uh, but don't quote me on that. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God. So there's the first reference to the message, the basis for the message, the word of God, in the synagogues of the Jews. That was common. Paul is working his way to the Gentiles, but it was very common to start every place they went in the synagogues. That was the gathering place of the people. You want to preach the gospel? You go to where the people are. They also had John, that's John Mark, as their assistant. So in a similar way that Timothy went with Paul and Silas on their next missionary journey as kind of a helper, John Mark went you know, on this journey. Of course, Timothy became Paul's son in the faith and very close to Paul. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote two letters to Timothy. John Mark, Paul wasn't very pleased when he left it left, and you know they kind of had a, a rift because of that. And now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was the, with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. It was not uncommon for political leaders in that day to 
when a teacher or, or a philosopher or someone that was known had a reputation for having something to say came to their region, they would request a private meeting with them. You know, the big key political figures, they can't get down and mingle with the masses and go to one of these synagogue meetings or out on the shoreline or whatever and listen to these speakers. So he asked for Paul and Barnabas to come to him. Um, but Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Boy, so many observations we can make from just that one verse alone. And I've experienced it in 32 years of ministry, how many times the, the, the devil uses people to, to cause distractions or to try to lead people away from the faith. Remember, 2 Corinthians 4.4 the devil is blinding men's hearts to the gospel, and he'll do that in a number of different ways. Um, then Saul, who is called Paul, verse 9, first time his name Paul is mentioned. Right? And from here on in the Bible, he's always referred to as Paul. But obviously, because he's now become, beginning his ministry and beginning to uh, go to the Gentiles, he takes uh, his uh, Gentile name. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? In other words, will you ever stop? Right? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by hand. You can get the picture here. This false prophet, this demonically inspired teacher that was trying to impede the, pro the, the proclamation of the gospel is now blind. And of course, it's kind of ironic that in the Word of God and the, under the inspiration of the Spirit, we see Paul beginning his spiritual life by being blinded when he met the Lord. And then in his first major ministry encounter, that same experience occurs to someone else. Um, and there, so this guy's wandering around trying to find someone to lead him. You kind of picture him bumping him into walls or whatever. But then, notice verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So we'll stop there for now, though we're going to look at a few other verses on the screen as we go through. But the, the fact of the matter is, you know, God often uses, especially in this first century apostolic age, miraculous events to get people's attention and many people come to the faith. We see that a lot throughout the book of Acts. Someone will be healed, and the result of that is it, gives, it provides a hearing for the gospel, and the gospel goes forth, and many people believe, and the Lord adds to the church as it's, as it's growing. But Paul stood on the Word of God, and 2,000 years later, the Word of God, the Bible, is our only standard, should be, for our beliefs, attitudes, and uh, behaviors. And... Um, Every word of God, Proverbs 30, verse 5 tells us, is pure, it's trustworthy, it's flawless, it's reliable, it's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit like joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That means the Bible is like a, a double-edged sword that can pierce our heart and separate within our hearts that which longs for the flesh from that which longs for the spirit. In other words, sometimes you're trying to figure out Okay, is this the Spirit of God directing me? Is this, you know, what should I do? Where should I go? Well, it's the Word of God that provides that lamp and that light. So as you go through, you see several places where it talks about uh, the Word of God. 
They preached the word of God. And remember, the proconsul believed, being astonished, it provided a hearing that this sorcerer was rebuked. But he, what was he astonished at? At the teaching of the Lord. You know. Now, wait a minute. I, I thought Paul was the one doing the teaching. Right? No. Paul's teaching was based on the Word of God. He was standing on the Word of God. And you know, if you have your, ever find yourself in a church where the preaching is not based on the Word of God, then you're not in a church. You're in a social club. Uh, and sadly, that's the way most churches are uh, today. Uh, you get down to verse 15. After leaving Cyprus, John Mark abandoned the group. Paul and Barnabas continue on their travels, and they get to that southern region of uh, Galatia, and uh, they stay there quite a while. And uh, you know, it says after the after and after the reading of the law and the prophets. So notice the people there were already reading the Word of God, the Bible that they knew, which was the Old Testament. Uh, they then said, "Hey, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on." In other words, their reputation preceded them. They were, you know speaking and traveling just the way Peter and John did in the early days of the church and these people wanted to uh, to say they did not by the way ask Paul to give his own version of the truth they appealed to the only standard truth God's word and say help us understand this we just read this kind of like the Ethiopian military official that Philip went to now if you can explain this if you can exhort us on this you know say on See, there's a difference between declaring the truth or making up truth versus helping someone understand the truth. Truth is truth whether someone accepts it or not. And we don't make up truth. Uh, we explain uh, truth. An unnamed wise man in Proverbs, this was not uh, Solomon, but an anonymous contributor to the book of Proverbs, put it this way that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who sent you. Paul had some words of truth that he wanted to share. He wasn't there to argue over the source or the substance of truth. He was there to proclaim the truth. Truth is not reached by agreement or consensus or a vote. Discovering the truth is not a democratic process. It's a good thing it's not, because if it were in this country, we would never know what the truth was. It's not a decision. Truth is inherent. Paul was explaining the words of truth as revealed in God's word. In fact, later, when, you know, when much later in the book of Acts, after his three journeys, when he's arrested and tried multiple trials, he's testifying before King Agrippa and the governor Festus accuses Paul of being crazy. You're out of your mind, he says. Remember what Paul said in response. He said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. In the first letter that Paul wrote, which he wrote right after this trip that we're looking at in Acts chapter 13, he says to the Galatians, look, am I trying to persuade man or God, or do I seek to please men? He goes on to say, if I'm trying to please men, I'm not a servant of God. I'm here to please God. When it comes to the gospel, uh, Paul says, I cannot agree with a false gospel even if I wanted to. Right? I'm not here to win, 
a popularity contest. I'm here to speak the truth. Speak the truth. You cannot stand on the Word of God and compromise at the same time. And by the way, Galatians, it's interesting to me that the first letter Paul wrote, he passionately defends the accuracy of the gospel. And he says, any gospel that deviates from that which I preached to you is not the gospel. And by the way, we have a record, we're looking at it right now in Acts 13, of exactly what Paul preached to the Galatians, because Acts records it. And he's referring back to those people. What is the gospel? It's a completely, absolutely, totally free gift. You can't earn it. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I claim. So you can't you know, get saved by making a commitment to the Lord, promising to do better, pledging to follow Him, committing, you know, forsaking all your sins. You know, a lot of people think you've got to repent of all your sins to be saved. The Bible never says that, by the way. It talks about repentance, to be sure. Believers ought to repent of their sins. They should stop sinning. Unbelievers ought to repent, change their mind about who God is and that salvation only comes through Christ. But nowhere does the Bible ever say you get saved because you stop sinning. Is that even possible? <laughs> and, and forsaking all your sins. How could I do that? How do I know if I've forsaken all my sins? If my eternal destiny in heaven is contingent upon the fact that I must have forsaken all my sins at that moment of conversion, I'll spend a lifetime wondering, did I forget one? Maybe there was this one. I, I don't know if I really forsook them all. I mean, I still sin today. You know, does that mean I didn't forsake them? Am I really saved? But salvation is not based on a bilateral contract between us and God, whereby we promise or pledge or commit to do something, and He says, well, okay, if you'll do that, then I'll do this. It's simply coming empty-handed to the cross and receiving the free gift. It's the way all gifts are received. If it's not free, it's not a gift. If it's not a gift, it's not free. So you don't earn your role in heaven by being nice like that lady was trying to... Because even if that worked, how nice do you have to be? You know? I mean, I think I'm pretty nice. But I know some people that I've run across in 32 years of ministry that would say, no, he's not nice. <laughs> you know? Uh, one, one person once told me that you know, I was a divisive person because I was standing firm on the gospel. You know, I had another person tell me one time, you care too much about the gospel. <laughs> you know, so I mean, some people don't think I'm nice. So how nice is nice? Well, fortunately, our entrance into heaven isn't based upon meeting some standard or contractual obligation with God. It's not a bilateral agreement. It's a unilateral gift. Jesus paid it all. And we simply receive by faith the free gift of eternal life. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. If you believe that, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life, then you're saved. On the authority of Scripture, you're saved. Um, and so Paul's very first letter that he wrote was clarifying the accuracy uh, of the Gospels. But if we go back to our text, all the way in to verse 42, after Paul's sermon, when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. What words? The words of truth. See, the truth is compelling. It's controversial, sure, but it's compelling. And at Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, or Paul and Barnabas, now we've experienced both blessings and problems because of the truth. You've got to be prepared for that. But notice, even in the midst of controversy, Luke tells us the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. The word of the Lord. What is the word of the Lord? 
Well, Jesus tells us in John 17, God's word is truth. The Bible is the embodiment of God's truth. The Bible is the embodiment of God's truth. So if we think about the Bible we hold in our hands today, which is God's complete revelation of mankind, we talked about this uh, some time ago in a midweek series we did here at Plum Creek on how we got our Bible, or on uh, how to read and understand the Bible, I think is what we called it. Um, but this is God's self-revelation to mankind. It's God's unveiling. God's, it's God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. God, at a point in time, roughly 1446 B.C., as the children of Israel left Egypt and began wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, at that moment, God said, okay, it's time. It's time for me to begin to tell you some things about myself that you can take to the bank. And through the pen of Moses, he inspired the first five books of the Bible. And then for the next 1,500 years, until you get to the end of the first century in the book of Revelation, God unveiled progressively the things that he wanted mankind to know about himself. Here I am, look at me. Right? Now God has revealed himself generally through nature and conscience and providence and all history and things like that. That's called general revelation. But the special revelation of God is con you know, contained in the Word of God, the written, infallible Word of God. So that by the end of the first century, uh, you know, after a period of 1,500 years, using some 40 different human authors on three different continents in three different languages originally, God had given us everything we need, as Peter says, for life and godliness. God's self-revelation to mankind. So why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? I, I collect funny church marquee sayings, and here's one I came across one time. Don't believe everything you think. <laughs> I wish more people would put that uh, into practice. Um, I got an email one time that had a tagline in the signature. You know, sometimes people will put meaningful quotes, things that are meaningful to them in their signature line on their email, and it said, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Gandhi. And I thought, I wanted to respond to him right away. I didn't. I resisted the urge. I said, no, that's not what happiness is. Happiness is not when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony with the Word of God. That's true happiness. No one will ever be happy by believing a lie and acting based upon a lie. So the Word of God is our only standard for truth. 3,800 times the Bible says, thus says the Lord. You want to know the mind of God? Get in the Word. The Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. In, in Paul's last letter that he wrote, and I want to close with this, just reviewing this passage, which he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy. So this is 67 A.D. So if you're doing the math, we're now some 20 years later in time. Paul's been on his three missionary journeys. He's in a prison cell awaiting martyrdom. And he's writing this letter to his young son in the faith, Timothy. And he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, the old King James, which is how I memorized this. This is the new King James. This verse said, study to show thyself approved unto God. Actually, it said, study to shew thyself approved unto God. I don't know why it said shew, but that was the old King James. Um, a worker, workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing. 
What does that mean? I know we've talked about this before in some contexts, but it's been a while. Rightly dividing, some translations say correctly handling the word of truth. There's not a lot of people out there correctly handling the word of truth. We're, we're doing what someone and I talked about during the break, eisegesis instead of exegesis. We're bringing our thoughts and uh, beliefs to the text rather than letting them emanate from the text. But this phrase, correctly handling, is one word in Greek, and it's the word orthotomeo in Greek. And it's the only time the word is ever used in the New Testament. It means to cut straight. It's where we get the English word uh, orthodontia or orthodontics. And well, what does an orthodontist do? He tries to make your teeth straight, right? You wouldn't want to go and pay thousands of dollars to an orthodontist if he couldn't make your teeth straight, right? It's kind of the point. Well, that's what the word means. Uh, it's a surgical word. And Paul uses the word here in 2 Timothy 2.15, orthotomeo, to describe how we are to handle God's word when we study it. We're to let the words on the page, when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Spirit, we're to let those words guide us along a straight path to the truth. Like a road that goes straight to its goal. Without being turned aside by speculation, mystical meanings, allegorical interpretations, or popular opinions. We're to let the Word of God speak plainly in its normal, grammatical, literal sense. That word, as I said, is only used once in the Greek New Testament, but there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was created in around 285 B.C. when the uh, Jewish people were under the, Ro the Greco-Roman Empire and Greek became the common language of the day. They needed to translate the Old Testament into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And twice, orthotomeo is used in the Septuagint. It's used in a very well-loved passage in Proverbs. In fact, both times it's in Proverbs. But in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I bet some of you have that memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Some translations say He shall make your paths straight. In the Greek translation, that's orthotomeo. Make your paths straight. Uh, the idea is, is that following God's direction in your life will cut a straight path in a straight direction, cut across a, a country that might be forested or pitfalls or uh, potholes that are difficult to pass through, but yet if you stick with God's Word, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, you'll be able to make it navigate straight through life. Back to 2 Timothy, Paul says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God, the idea is, may be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Four things he says that the Bible is profitable for. This is why we need to stand on the truth. It's profitable for doctrine. That is, it tells us what to believe. See, these days people don't like doctrine because they don't like to be told what to believe. They want to believe whatever they want to believe. They want to believe whatever they think, right? Doctrine is too divisive, right? But the word doctrine is used 21 times in the New Testament, and 18 of those are in the epistles challenging the church to hold firmly to sound doctrine. And Paul says one of the benefits of studying the Word of God is it will tell us what to believe. But it's also profitable for reproof, which is to say it tells us what not to believe. That's what reproof means. Sometimes you need to be alerted 
to false beliefs to watch out for. Paul says it's profitable for correction. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that the Bible tells us what not to do. See, sometimes we need correction. Don't do this. And then it's also profitable for instruction in righteousness or training in righteousness, which is to say that sometimes the Bible tells us what to do. So when you think about it, the Bible tells us what to believe and what not to believe, how to behave and how not to behave. What more do you need in life? If you can nail down those four things, you'll be, you'll be blessed. As James, the Lord's brother, said, hearing the word of God and doing the word of God brings blessing. So why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? I want you to really ask yourself that question this week. What is the basis for your belief? Now, to whatever extent influences in your life have led you to believe something that is defended and supported and accurate according to Scripture, praise God. God brings people into our lives to do that, including parents and preachers and teachers and friends and whatever. But you've got to make sure that you run everything through the grid of Scripture so that what we believe can be defended from the Word of God. And if we do that, if we stand on the Word of God, then like Paul, we'll see incredible things happen. We'll see great results. We'll be protected and we'll receive the blessing of God. Not blessings the way human humanity thinks of blessings, you know, physical, tangible things. But I did a podcast last week on what does it really mean to be blessed. And in that I talk about how blessings come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, but you can, you can count on the fact that we'll be blessed if we stand on God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this uh, reminder from Paul's journey. and Thank you for the example that he gave us in standing firm on the Word of God. I pray that you'd raise up men and women, young people, uh, that are unashamedly willing to take a stand for the truth and to stand firmly on your word and to proclaim the gospel that your word gives us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close.